0: Welcome to the very final season of Best Girl Grip. I am your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. This week's guest is Claire Baines, the BFI's first disability equality lead. Claire is a blind creative, unable to recognise her own experience reflected in culture, she uses storytelling to create community and belonging for disabled people. Through comedy and joy, she challenges society's perception of disability, queerness and all of the joyful intersections in between. She is also the BFI's first disability equality lead, where she leads on community-led action to tackle ableism within the industry, authentic on-screen representation and advocates for disabled talent and audiences. Elsewhere, she has recently written and directed her first short film, a rom-com called Blind Date, funded by Roundhouse, that confronts the subject of ableism within dating through the eyes of a young, visually impaired woman. We talk about Claire's experience of becoming blind at the age of 15 her degree in biomedical engineering and working in tech before joining the BFI. In the context of her role there, we talk about where you begin with creating equality and changing certain practices in the industry, finding kinship and community in the industry, and how people who aren't deaf, disabled or neurodiverse can be better allies to those who do identify as such. Claire was a joyous guest to have on the podcast. She emanates hope and energy and passion and she's someone that makes me glad to be a part of this industry, so I hope you enjoy listening. This is episode 129 of Best Girl Grip. For you, I'd like to start in the realm of higher education because actually I know you've had maybe a slightly different path into the film industry than some of my other guests. And you did a degree in biomedical engineering. So I'd love to hear about what led you to pursuing that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I've always had this duality of being academically minded but also really enjoying and loving creativity. I think also combining that with parents who are concerned and want to move more traditional route. Um, I ended up being swayed into the realms of engineering, but why specifically biomedical? So I lost my sight at 15, which is like such an integral age, especially in the realm of higher education. You're completing your GCSEs. You're about to choose your A levels. Puberty is happening. It's all going on. So I really had this experience. And during that process of also like losing my sight, having to attend like numerous hospital appointments. And having so many like days sick of school, I missed something like 50% of my year 11, just like due to disability sickness and appointments. But I think out of that whole process, I really valued and started to understand the importance of our NHS, like how incredible these people are, but also fundamentally how little we know about the human body. Like we know more about space than we do about the human brain. And like that to me is baffling, but also incredibly exciting Um, so I think that's definitely what drove me to choose biomedical engineering was that drive and support of like supporting other disabled people like me who went through that process um, never knew what caused their disability and when you go through that process it's like you just kind of get left behind and I really wanted to be able to change that in some way
0: did it feel like a bit of a fork in a road you feel like you would have gone down a different path hadn't that not happened to you at the age of 15?
1: it's really interesting i think it definitely made me incredibly more resilient and like it's almost like a whole process of grief like losing that and like having to adapt to a whole new different environment potentially but i think i think i probably would have still ended up engineering at some point again just down to having like traditional parents who wanted me to pursue something that was safety net but i think definitely biomedical and understanding what is a disabled experience yeah definitely a like massive life-changing moment
0: And I mean, I'm very much someone that has always been in the creative industries and has never been like scientifically minded. So I'm wondering, you know, is there a career that is like very um, explicitly attached to a degree in biomedical engineering? Did you have a sense of what that could look like after graduating from university?
1: I mean, there was like, you can do academia, you can do research, but I mean, I wasn't the most school-minded although like I did enjoy it like the thought of having to stay longer in university rather than doing like practical work that definitely benefited people was not necessarily appealing to me I think the thing that always stuck out like to me is that even in biomedical engineering if it was like a chance to tell stories or do filmmaking in some way or some form like they encouraged us to do that and that was very interesting to see how storytelling and using that as a way to help change perspectives especially when talking about illness medical stuff um, was really really interesting
0: i'm definitely going to like come back to this relationship you have to film and storytelling because i feel like it has obviously pre-existed your career in film but i do want to talk about your role at zebra technologies which preceded your role at the bfi because that sounds just so interesting and how you were you were looking at digital solutions and technology that can better support disabled people can you talk to me a little bit about your responsibilities and your role and, and what that job taught you
1: yeah, absolutely. So I started off as like a graduate and um, doing sales engineering. So like a day to day job would be like coding, but also I had um, a really interesting job that looked at Europe, Middle East and Africa and how we can support our sales engineers. I think things that I learned from that role were how to navigate a huge organization of like thousands of people and how you can make an impact or enact organizational change. I think also I was one of 10 female engineers out of 130 which was yeah really mad and i think seeing that disparity pushed me into the d and i world within this role so like even though like my day to day job was like developing de- digital stuff like that's when i started doing more like d and i stuff on the side so i looked at stuff with like early careers How can we support younger people? Like trying to move into like engineering, also disability. Like looking at how we can support our staff, our employees, giving more opportunities to disabled people, being like decision making roles, that sort of thing. So it definitely taught me a lot about, I think, just navigating the world of work and just organisations and the bureaucracy that comes with that, and also maintaining the focus of like how can we support our customers, how can we support our audience. How can we make our technology
0: more accessible, more ergonomic, and just better? And, and I'm wondering if you felt that disparity tangibly, because obviously, you know, like it is a statistic, but did it affect your day to day or just your experience of the workplace in general?
1: So it was really interesting because I graduated in a time of COVID. So I started work from working from home in my parents' bedroom, which is like such a severe experience. Well, so I don't think I really had a grasp on it until we had like our first in-person event. I've been in the job for about over a year now. And I was like, there are no women. The only women are in marketing. Oh my goodness. This is like, it was incredibly like, it was just like suit, 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 suits. I was one woman. Hi. So yeah, I think in general, it didn't affect me, but until it was like in-person in the workplace. Then you really felt it
0: It seems like it spurred you on to want to really like do the work as you say in like DNI to kind of fix that problem and, and really investigate it but I also feel like it could be um, it could be quite draining and it could be quite hard to like realize that and I'm wondering what spurred you on I guess or like what gave you that like positive mindset of like no, this can be changed.
1: I mean, I, well, part of me was like, I'm a Taurus, I'm really stubborn. So like when I see a problem in front of me, I just want to change it and be like, this is wrong. We should like change this. That was my first instinct. But like, how do you find joy and energy? I think it's all about kinship and finding that community and creating those spaces where you can hold those underrepresented groups and find connection. Because I think fundamentally, you can't, you can't create change by yourself you have to have kinship firstly with underrepresented groups but also creating allies because without allies this work will not continue it won't happen so i think that is
0: where the joy is
1: social energy
0: yeah absolutely and i guess that kind of actually leads on quite nicely to like the cinema and thinking about your pre-existing relationship to that and to film culture and as you say your interest in storytelling i'd love to hear a little bit about your origin story with that and and how that began
1: Growing up, I grew up in the countryside, and the nearest cinema to my house was about an hour, two hours drive, which just didn't really happen. So, like, my association with film is very much growing up um, VHS. Like, that is my association of. So, like, me and my dad used to have this like Saturday pilgrimage where we'd walk, like, we'd go to the market. My dad would pick up the vegetables, and then he would let me go to this. There was like this one dodgy man who had a video stall, and he had one pound videos. He had literally everything you could possibly ever imagine. And my dad would allow me to buy one video and then I would watch that video on repeat for basically a week and then repeat and repeat. And that was very much like my cinema education. I think also I owe a lot to my dad himself. He did a lot of like a classic Sunday, like Bane's Family Afternoon would be like him bringing out a cinema classic. So like Watching Back to the Future, American Graffiti, Cliff Richards' Summer Holiday. Definitely gave me an appreciation of cinema and also like upon this for like all different varieties of filmmaking and then like filmmaking and storytelling specifically I was literally at my parents house um, last weekend and we were looking at family videos because my dad's given him the task of like digitizing these videos And I didn't realize I took so many videos as a child and it's me like being fascinated with like how cameras work and just wanting to document everything I recreated a video that my dad filmed he did like a house tour and then I redid it and like try to like recreate it like shot for shot which is just so I had this fascination that I wasn't even really aware of but yeah I think that's definitely like the beginnings of my cinematic film love
0: Yeah, that really resonates with me. I remember my dad showing me American graffiti as well. (laughs) It's like a rite of passage. And I'd love to speak about, you know, your own experiences of going to the cinema after becoming blind. And, you know, what practices or provisions, you know, such as the ticket booking systems or, you know, having audio description that have like facilitated an enjoyable experience and made that something that you continued enjoying?
1: I think coming into this as somebody who became newly disabled, I think it was a period of time where I was navigating this new sense of identity and was really in denial about wanting to use the support and access materials that cinema had. So like for a while, I never used AD. I was like, um, so just for reference, I have no peripheral vision, but I have like a little bit of central vision. So I was like, if I sit at the back of the cinema, I'll be all right. But I think as I grew up and as I progressed and Going for university. The first time I watched a film with AD was by myself once I moved to London, and just having that experience was so joyful. And I was like, there's so much more that I can understand now. This is amazing. I'm not missing anything. It was like such a genuinely glorious experience, like very euphoric. However, I think what I soon quickly learned is that not all films are created equal and that audio description can drastically vary there is so much nuance in creating good audio description and that really should be something that's regulated and treated as part of the cinema making experience so that's kind of like my audio description journey whereas like booking tickets that's something that I really like grasped onto I think quicker if that makes sense so there's something called CA card which is created by the UK Cinema Association which is where you pay £6 for a year membership. And um, as part of that, you get a free companion ticket to whatever cinema you go to. And at the beginning, as a student, I was like, this is great. Cheaper cinema tickets. I can take my friends. This is amazing. Everyone wants to come to the cinema with me. This is great. But I think as like my journey with cinema has developed and my relationship has changed and my understanding of like access and what are my rights... I feel like no one should have to pay for access. I think I understand the idea of that like, they have to fund these costs, but I don't think that should be on the disabled person to pay those and fund those. So, like my utopian dream would be just being able to have all a, like a one-stop shop for all venues where like you can just like say that you're disabled. You don't have to go through jumping all the different hoops of like proving that you're disabled and not having to pay like a tax effectively for being disabled and having to have these free companion tickets which are so integral because I feel like without companion tickets when I'm like navigating a new cinema it's a stressful experience like I don't know where I'm going trying to find random signage is really difficult so like companion tickets are so integral to a disabled person's viewing experience that I don't think they should pay for those for that privilege.
0: It's such a good point because it's almost like in getting it for such a reduced price you're sort of like oh well it's a bargain and it's so good but then actually yeah you're kind of tricked out of the mindset of like well we shouldn't have to pay for this at all.
1: Literally, literally.
0: And I'm wondering if this idea of kind of trying to facilitate or create a utopian experience was what led you to being interested in, in working at the BFI, at being at a place where you could you could engender that?
1: Definitely, definitely. I think I mean, the BFI is the BFI. Like when you think about iconic British cinema, you're like, oh, the BFI, it's the mecca of British film. And I think through the process of like transitioning from a technology background, I was really fortunate to get a screen skills mentorship. And as part of that, develop my understanding of cinema, develop my understanding of filmmaking and also where I could work within film as somebody who is disabled and as part of that my very wonderful mentor Victoria suggested and energised me to apply for this role and I think that's the thing with the BFI as you said is that it really does hold a certain power within the British film industry of being able to enact this change and that is something that is so incredibly exciting and also such a joy to be a part of to know that you can enact some change and make this a uh, more equitable place for disabled people to work in, which is exciting.
0: And I'm wondering if you feel like your background, you know, in academia and technology and engineering actually gives you an, an an advantage, you know, in this role and, and whether it gives you a different perspective. Had you, like, for instance, come from you know, a film industry background, you know, how that might have changed how you approach this role?
1: No, absolutely. I think in the beginning, I had, like, huge imposter syndrome. I was like, I don't know... I haven't studied film, I don't know what I'm doing. But actually, I think there's so much that's there's so much value and diversity of thought in all organisations and companies, having people from different lived experience, different backgrounds is what makes working together together so exciting. Like you can have these different conversations and learn from each other and learn different skill sets. So I think particularly with engineering, having a problem solving, uh, like project management focus, so integral to enacting organisational change. Like that completely makes sense to me. Like you have an issue, you work through that process. How do you manage that? What's the timeline? So I think that's so integral and definitely gives an advantage rather than being able to list all the films that Goddard ever made, which I probably can't. That's okay. You know, we've all got our skill
0: sets. We've all got our skill sets. 100% love to see it. (laughs) Just as a little pricey for people listening, can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, your job at the BFI and sort of what it entails and maybe what your day to day looks like?
1: Yeah, definitely. So as the BFI's first ever disability equality lead, what does that actually mean? So I work within the inclusion team to help deliver Screen Culture 2033, which is our 10-year strategy where inclusion and access are really at the core values of this. But like, how does that work in applying to our day-to-day work? I think so much of what I do is building relationships, trying to understand the business and also educate people and help them to change their mindset around access and how they can have an access first mindset and really apply this across everything that the BFI does rather than it just being me one person how can we enact this across the entirety of the organization so like a lot of that's through meetings partnering with grassroots organizations really empowering disabled people to have these opportunities as well
0: Amazing. We're going to go deep. I want to get into kind of all of it because obviously the industry is is so big and it covers so much. But I think you touched on something interesting there, which is that you're the first person to inhabit this role. And I'm wondering, therefore, you know, what framework or template you're kind of operating within to sort of understand how to do this work and what's expected of you?
1: It's really, really interesting to come into something that's never been before it's also incredibly exciting I think it's given me a lot of freedom and capacity to innovate and adapt I think that's the most exciting thing is that it's very much set the agenda is set by me rather than these I mean that obviously I have like priorities and objectives that I should be doing but I think also being able to Be the person who is an expert on the disabled lived experience and not necessarily having to be held accountable to archaic ways of doing things is really, really fun. It's very, very interesting. But I also feel like we had the wonderful race equality lead um, with Rico and um, being able to see how... He approaches work was definitely an inspiration for me moving forward. But I think the people, like how I'm held accountable and like what is the framework, is definitely decided by. We try to do a lot of work with disabled people and our disab- uh, disability screen advisory group, um, which is like a group of external partners who help advise us on what we should be doing. So I think that's the basis of the framework is like being advised by them to enact the change that they want to see
0: it's like the mantra nothing about us without us and obviously yeah that's really good to hear and you mentioned there sort of you get to set your priorities but I mean that's easier said than done and I'm wondering where you even begin like is it a case of if you tackle one important issue it will have like a trickle down effect or like you know a snowball effect or is it that you're trying to kind of attack multiple issues at once you know in order to be most effective like how does that work?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I feel like, so for complete transparency, we're still in the process of setting these um, priorities, like as we're at the beginning of our 10 year strategy period, um, we're still very much in like a consultation period working with the Disability Screen Advisory Group. Um, so we also have new membership of our Disability Screen Advisory Group. So, we have a new chair, who's the wonderful Kyla Harris, and she really has focus of intersectionality and like how can we focus on intersectional disabled experiences and elevate those to the forefront because I think this is the thing with disabilities that is so nuanced that I think unless we're really approaching this from an intersectional perspective, change is going to be difficult. So we're looking to work with other underrepresented groups to enact these changes but I think um if we're looking at like key core priorities I think education is such a huge thing I think that's internally within the BFI but also within the film industry itself I think the thing with disability is that I think it's a really scary topic for some people I think it's being almost faced with some people's inadvertent is like worst nightmare like the thought of becoming disabled can be difficult for some people to process and like especially with cinemas portrayals and tropes of disability people don't really understand the actual genuine lived experience of disability and how joyful it is and how great it can be obviously there are some negative aspects that's the same with all life um but yes yeah, so education um disability awareness upskilling our front of house staff and so that when we can deliver accessible screenings we can be we can deliver the best customer service we possibly can for anybody despite what their disability like may be so another one of like so looking at our like what sort of screenings do we provide we have our relaxed screenings which are so incredible so they're really like spearheaded by Maggie Hurt who's a wonderful film programmer at our program team and we're looking to train our staff You also work with neurodivergent film curators and programmers so within everything that we do with our priorities, it's working with disabled people. So like, as I said before, with education, getting disabled people in to educate people so that like disabled people have those opportunities and also other priorities, just having better dis- disabled statistics. But again, I don't think that's going to happen until we have that education piece in place.
0: I'm going to split it out now into, like, behind the scenes or, like, behind, like, the screen opportunities and sort of, like, on-screen representation. But I guess I'm wondering, you know, education you really need like organisations and you know the people that are sort of working within the remit of the BFI to want to engage with that work like you kind of can't force it on people and I'm wondering how you stimulate that that receptivity to this kind of work and and that willingness to engage. So
1: I attended an event recently with Scope which is like the disability charity for the UK and they recently did this piece of research about how do you engage non-disabled people to basically care about the disabled experience. And there's never been any research done on this before, which again shows how evident that this needs to be done and this work is important. But the outcomes of that was that the things that resonated with non-disabled people were superhuman, like tropes of talking about Paralympics, disabled people being exceptional, which I personally don't necessarily agree with, but it's very interesting to see that that's something that motivates people, like the impulse of people overcoming, overcoming their disabilities. And then the other thing that resonated with people is perspective taking like how would you feel if you were in their shoes which again is so interesting because these are the two things i probably wouldn't have necessarily went with personally but if it works it works so i think that's definitely something worth trying to see how can we engage people in this work and i think also the thing with disability is that it's 20 percent of the uk population is disabled that is a fact that's one in five people it's going to increase aging populations and i think People have more of a relation to disability than they might expect. And it's like, how can we draw on their lived experiences, whether that's via a carer or whether maybe they have a parent? How can we use those attachments to make people understand and care about how important it is to create these spaces also for disabled people in the workplace? That's the current challenge, still ongoing, but I feel like there has, even within the year that I've been here, there's been so much movement of people wanting to engage with this work or people actively going out of their way to think about how they can make their event accessible and like they're like I've put this in place does this sound good I'm like yeah it sounds amazing like it's really really great to just see people doing this work off their own backs and that's really exciting.
0: I think that touches on a really important point which is to not have a fear of asking if this is okay? Or am I doing this right? And I wonder if you feel that also applies to on-screen representations and how we can kind of get better at a culture of openness and a culture of like failing, but like not being afraid to like say the wrong word or use the wrong descriptions. But just knowing that that's all part of the process of like getting better at, you know, inclusivity and representation.
1: I mean, change is incremental. Like we're going to make mistakes along the way. I make mistakes along the way. We are all human. That is part of change but as you said so specifically like on-screen representation so for people who might be listening who don't know there's a practice called cripping up which is when a non-disabled person takes the role of a disabled character that's something that as the BFI we are really against and like do not condone in any way I think if we're thinking about this like we wouldn't accept blacking up so why is it when you know non-disabled actor portrays a disabled person we celebrate it we give them awards why is that it's really something that we need to reflect on so how are we changing this? So within the BFI itself, we have this really wonderful panel called the Disability and Visible Difference Panel, which has been sitting across our audience fund, which again, people who don't know, our audience fund is where people apply for like funding to get their films distributed and more regularly seen across cinemas. And how can we help that? So where films displayed disabilities or visible difference, they were shared with an anonymous group of people who could give feedback on whether they thought that this um, piece of representation, whether it was authentic, whether it was harmful, whether it was ableist. And then upon receiving that feedback, um, the Audience Fund can then give a decision to the filmmakers about whether they're going to fund it or not. The feedback that we had from the Audience Fund is that it was so incredibly beneficial because they don't have that lived experience on their team, being able to consult people and understand firstly the nuances that are already within the disability community, because some people agree, some people disagreed, but just being able to see that conversation happen about what is good representation was so 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 beneficial to them so as an organization i'm currently in the process of trying to expand this fund um not just only to be disability and visible difference but to be an intersectional more broad representation panel that can sit across our audience fund but also our film fund and really ensure that authentic representation is considered from all aspects whether that's at the script stage treatment stage screening stage whatever it may be I think that's the way that we can stop harmful portrayals of disability entering society because those are the things that are contributing to ableism even if it's like at a very low level or even like subconscious level those stories do have an effect and do harm the disability community so anything that we can do as the BFI to stop that is good
0: (laughs) I guess I want to touch on the word like nuance and authenticity and I'm reluctant to use the word should But I'm wondering, you know, what are the types of stories that we should be looking to tell? Because you you spoke earlier about sort of a lot of disability narratives centering on like overcoming the disability and often centering the disability, like thinking obviously of one of the most mainstream films to get a lot of attention recently, Sound of Metal. And even though you had this narrative where he kind of chooses to embrace deaf culture and kind of not have the hearing aid, it still was just like such a big part of that narrative in a way that it's kind of makes his life about his disability and I'm wondering if you know you have a personal reflection on those kind of narratives and whether you'd like to see a different kind of storytelling around disability.
1: Uh, I mean also The Sound of Metal that's another instance of prepping Up which is also my personal opinion is that I firstly I think there's so much pity porn, trauma porn, overcoming inspiration yada 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 or like even in horror when like disabled people are used as like oh they're so spooky oh there's a blind girl you can't see oh that's so scary i think things like that are really really negative and harmful i think what i would love to see is more disabled people telling their stories i think that's the thing about these stories is the reason why they're harmful is because they're not written by disabled people and that's precisely why they lean into these tropes or um, stereotypes because they don't they don't know any better and I'm not I'm not like I mean I don't think it's coming from a harmful place of people being like oh, I'm gonna try and be create the most ableist thing ever I think it's purely that people just don't know any better so I think until disabled people have control over their own narratives and characters I don't see a way that it can become much better like that's what i would love to see just where disabled people can tell disabled stories and it doesn't necessarily have to be that the disability is key part perhaps they are just disabled that's the whole point that we just see more normalized well in a what is normal anyways but more just more disabled representation in media in general
0: Is there anything that you would give as as an example of something that you've seen that does that well, that people should kind of look towards and write towards as kind of a template or something that just, you know, they could do more of?
1: At at a feature level, I can think of documentaries. But again, seeing a feature film by a disabled filmmaker, I really struggled to find them i think there's some really good references in short film i think my eyes are up here i think it's all on bbc iPlayer. i'm pretty sure it's still on bbc iPlayer. Well, but it's definitely made by bbc films is a great it's just like it's just a lovely rom-com um but it's got a wheelchair user and like it talks about ableism within dating it talks about like internalized ableism it's it's just a really good like example of i think nuanced disabled storytelling.
0: Fantastic. I'll definitely link to that in the show notes. And yeah, if you want to send me any other recs afterwards, I know I put you on the spot there. <laughs> um, I will definitely link to those as well. And in this idea and in the spirit of kind of moving towards change and transparency, I'd love to get your perspective on how you think people working in the film industry can be better allies.
1: I love this question and uh, so I recently made my first short film so like from a very real practical sense I tried to think about how how can we just approach filmmaking in a completely different realm and what are the learnings that I could share with other people to help make their film sets more accessible more inclusive I think this also applies just in general but I can think of like three very sound pieces of advice and I think the first thing is language. I think people are so scared with disability of getting it wrong saying the wrong thing that I think just sharing language about what's acceptable to use these are the words that we're going to use on set this is how this person identifies is a really great way to just get everybody on the same page get that conversation going early and just reassure people whether they are disabled or non-disabled that the set that they're going to be entering is inclusive. I think a good place to start is that I've recently updated the the BFI preferred terms so we have notes on race, disability, LGBTQI plus and that's a really great place for anybody to start if they're not sure about what language is good to use. I think a second piece of advice that I can give is just ask people their access requirements. It's, It's really really basic Whether you think somebody's disabled or not, I think asking anybody their access requirements is, again, another great way to create this inclusive environment, like whether that's somebody's vegetarian, that's like an access requirement. Whether somebody needs childcare, that's an access requirement. That's a really, really great way just so that people know that this is the vibe or the culture that you will be taking. It's really, really great. And then I think from like a definitive filmmaking perspective, access materials body description and descriptive subtitles think about these like these shouldn't be an afterthought like how can you make your film in an accessible way like an enjoyable experience like irrelevant of whether you have a disability or not but I think just level the playing field for cinema viewing for everybody I think is so 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 important and can really make people feel like you care about them and also if you do a good job like the disability community they're going to tell people like you're going to get a lot of people watching your film because like we're all interconnected so I think that's a really great way and a really great place to start sorry I've got two more pieces of advice I know I said only three but I've got two more pieces badges and pronouns again another way just to be accessible and then if you are thinking of like specifically filmmaking advice brazen productions have fantastic resources on easy read call sheets and other pieces of information and i really urge everybody to check them out if they are thinking of making their film set a more accessible and joyful place
0: As they should be. Thank you for explaining those so clearly. And I will absolutely include those resources. I mean, it threw up a lot of questions. I guess the first one is sort of around audio description and what it sounds like to you to have something that is sort of nuanced and joyful and that really is able to kind of describe the film world and not just, you know, very plainly what's happening on screen.
1: Yeah, I think going to somebody who specialises in it, like paying the extra money don't just do it yourself like I know especially like in a short film there's such an urge to be like oh I can make um audio description it's actually a real skill set and people should be paid to do it I think this is the thing like with really bad audio description people talk over the dialogue like you miss bit sometimes it's in really jarring accents which I know seems like a very pedantic thing but let's say you're watching a British film and then suddenly you have like a really painful American accent in your ear you're just like i This is very jarring. This feels wrong to me. So I think it's things like that. But like there are some really wonderful companies out there who deliver those access materials, which are really, really great
0: yeah 100% as someone that you know exacts short films and has to listen to access materials I would totally agree (laughs) on on, yeah going to the experts that know how to do it and that know how to do it really well and again it comes back to this point of like it seeming like a luxury but again that's such a able-bodied perspective to be like oh how annoying that we have to pay for this and it's it's yeah I think we just need to dispel that notion that it it should be an accessory as opposed to something that's just like integral to the experience of watching the film
1: completely and i think that's like from budgeting in general like just having an access budget or having an access line in your budget if you are making a film and considering this from the get-go so that your funds don't disappear because obviously like in post-production that is when you're making your access materials but if you save that money then
0: you're okay. I also want do want to spend a little bit of time in this interview, which is going extraordinarily really quickly. Um, but I want to spend a bit of time talking about, you know, access requirements in the workplace, as well as, you know, just on film sets and in film production in general. And I'm wondering, you know, how you felt entering a workplace, kind of stating and asking for the things that you need to kind of be able to do your job on a day-to-day basis? Like, how do you go about asking for that and implementing it in a way that it does feel fair and inclusive for everyone and not, like, A nuisance for people that have a particular way of working?
1: So I think in general having a really sound like reasonable adjustments policy, having a really good communication between your people team and also the IT team because I think those are the two most integral people to enact those reasonable adjustments and making like also ensuring that line managers have suitable training because Maybe they've never, you know, managed somebody who's got a disability before. And perhaps um, in the beginning, you're like, oh, maybe that's, oh, this person's asking for this. That's quite unreasonable. But like, if you haven't had that education of reasonable adjustments, that's a legal requirement. How has it been for me? I think it's, I mean, it's still progress. I think also entering into a new industry, a new way of working has been an adjustment for me and trying to figure out what do I need to work at my best or work with my disability rather than against my disability like how can I change the way that I work I have a really wonderful manager and they are really encouraging of myself and my teammates of like how to work best for us which is really really great for example I think putting boundaries in place so like I have a bit in my email signature which explains about my disability and also that sometimes I have reduced screen hours so therefore like I think in the film industry where email is king and people send emails a million times a day, um, but just explaining that I might be a bit delayed, you know, there is a thing called crypt time and it takes us sometimes a little bit longer, but that's okay. And I think being okay with that and... I think sometimes there's like the onus on the disabled person to educate everybody. But I think that's also why the organisation has a responsibility to educate all employees on disability awareness so that that onus is not on the disabled person to constantly having to fight for what is best for them.
0: Yeah absolutely and I think it you know even if you're just more conscious of like how and when you're emailing and you know even if you're just giving it that little bit extra like energy and brain space thinking about how you're wording a sentence how you're spacing a sentence I don't know like anything that you can do to kind of as you say like reverse that onus and put it on you to kind of consider how someone might be receiving this it was certainly something you know I was very conscious of when I got in contact with you and just thinking about okay like what do I need to ask here like not to look like a dick.
1: Like I genuinely really appreciate it but I think that's also like asking people their communication preferences like some people really enjoy voice notes some people just like want like a bare bones email with just bullet points it's just figuring out what's the best way for people to communicate and figuring how to manage that
0: and you use this term reasonable adjustment and obviously that is going to come down to individual preference and you know what is reasonable for everyone like how do you define that how do you navigate kind of just you know what feels reasonable to ask like is that something that is a challenge sometimes to kind of be honest about
1: that's a really good question I again I think in the beginning I think I found it something difficult because it's like I work for the BFI I'm so lucky to be working here but realistically it's just like an organization like anywhere else and you know I think it's like empowered or feeling psychologically safe enough that you feel like you can ask for what you need is so important I think that's why people asking irrelevant irrelevant of whether you think you're disabled like whether you think the person's disabled or not is so important because it gives people that opportunity to share if they feel confident or safe enough to do so but it's it's really a process I think it's something that I have got better at like I'm going to a film festival later on this year and they put me in accommodation that was really far away from the festival and I was like just to let you know that's not very accessible like is there someone that's potentially closer I was like oh proud of me for like genuinely saying what's best for me and what is accessible for me and they were really responsive to that so I think it's just it's a process and learning curve for everybody navigating these conversations and I think just having that in the back of the mind and that I don't think anyone's ever trying to intentionally be ableist so it's okay to just say what you need and vice
0: versa. And something's just occurred to me and feel free to like not answer it if you don't want to but I guess the tension that exists for me in D&I work is that you know as you say like the onus shouldn't be on the person to educate you know people that are in the mainstream you know it shouldn't be on on the marginalized person to kind of tell everyone this is how it works but obviously when you're in a DNI role that very much is your work and I'm wondering how you navigate that tension and does it ever get tiring and also is the goal for you to graduate out of dni work because you know that would be like almost like a resolution to you having done this work in the first place
1: i keep on going back i don't know if you saw that speech that Taika Titi made about like being like where are all you know the black and global majority people at? it's like we're sitting on your panels that's where we are like maybe let us do the work and we wouldn't have to have these conversations over and over again um so i think that's definitely one part is ensuring that there's opportunities for disabled people like stop putting us on panels and actually put put us on set and then we wouldn't have to have these conversations. I think put your money where your mouth is. I think is it tiring? Absolutely. I think first off just like managing my disability in itself is tiring but then also having to talk about really heavy topics like day in day out sometimes like talking about ableism like racism All the you know all the juicy stuff of the D and I world, all the isms, all the phobias. There's also these moments of pure joy, and when you have these connections and these kinships and these meetings, you're like, "This is precisely why I do the work." You have these connections, and you think, "This is amazing. Humanity is great. Why can't this be every day?" And it can be every day, but that's precisely why we are in these roles is to make those joyful moments every day. And I really feel like having. Been a part of this role, I have found so much more disabled kinship, which I am so unbelievably grateful for. And I think the disability community in particular is so welcoming. They're like, if you need anything, ring me. Like I'm only a phone call away. Like if you want to talk about things, like because they they've been through it, they understand the physical barriers, the emotional barriers, and are so supportive of trying to come together in order to change that rather than you just being a sole person by yourself, which is really, really, I'm incredibly grateful for.
0: Yeah, you don't feel siloed in the work. And I guess like tying into that, like what is your sense of ambition for your own career? Is it about graduating out of d work? Because that would, you know, signal that the work has been done and maybe the solutions had been found or you know is that something that you love enough to want to stay in it for the long term?
1: I know this is something that we always talk about in the inclusion team is that we shouldn't exist like we're which the aim is to work ourselves out of a job like that is the end goal my very much my drive as a person is always to try and find and help other disabled people find a sense of belonging I think not being able to see myself represented on screen not being able to see myself represented in the workplace um has been very much been my driving force in anything that I do I think that's why I also decided to start doing some filmmaking on the side because I feel like not being able to see the disabled stories that I want to see it has also been such a you know motivator to do this work I think I just I just I just would like you know it to be better I think that is the main goal like wh- whether that like through whatever I end up doing whether that be D&I work whether that be filmmaking whether that be who knows what I think as long as I am helping to contribute to real change for disabled people and to make the world a more equitable and joyful place that's very much the driving force
0: can you tell us a little bit about your filmmaking work I know the short films it's always so hard to get them out there and to direct people as to where to see them but is it going to be at a film festival anytime soon what can you share with us
1: um, absolutely. So it's a queer rom-com called Blind Date and it's about a blind bisexual person navigating the world of dating and ableism but told you comedy and joy. I had my first screening of it a while back but I'm currently in the process of just trying to figure out what's the festival strategy, how is the best way to like create an audience for this film and how can it be seen by as many people as possible. It was a really, it was a really interesting experience. I think especially having worked at the BFI for a while and then actually going through the filmmaking process itself has definitely informed my work more so that I can be a better advocate in the workplace, which has been really interesting. But it was very much rooted in trying to have a majority disabled cast, a majority disabled crew, queer crew, and make it an accessible, inclusive and stress-free, joyful place.
0: Yeah, as all filmmaking experiences should be, frankly, I know that's not always uh, possible, um, but also superior title, amazing work. (laughs) I'd love to know if there's a piece of advice that you've been given that has sort of steered your course or just stayed with you throughout the course of your career so far.
1: So I used to have a Spanish manager called Kike and the one piece of advice he always said is like, you don't know what you don't know. And I think that's really true. Like you don't, you genuinely don't know what you don't know. And I think what that means is it's okay to ask questions. It's okay not to be like, I know everything because fundamentally you don't know everything. You can learn so much from other people and being curious is a really wonderful thing and helps you to understand people, understand situations. And I think it's the best piece of advice that I always come back to because it's so true.
0: You just don't know what you don't know very applicable to today's chat and also I think like to add on to um Kike's advice there is to like not be defensive about what you don't know to sit in the discomfort of not knowing something (laughs) you don't know
1: let's find out together it can be a nice collaborative experience and it doesn't have to yeah completely it doesn't have to be defensive it doesn't have to be you're wrong I'm right
0: and finally is there a film by a woman director that you would like to recommend today
1: Yes, there is. Um, so there's a really wonderful film by the writer-director Ella Glendinning. It is called Is Anybody Out There? It's her first feature. It's a documentary. It explores the disabled experience, the career experience, the medical model, the social model, disabled kinship, all that good juicy stuff that we've basically been discussing today. And it will make you laugh, it will make you cry. I saw it and I sobbed. My parents attended a talk by her, they didn't even see the film, and my parents sobbed, but they also laughed, and I think that's very indicative of the filmmaker that Ella is, and, um, she's really wonderful, and it's really great, and everybody should watch it, and,
0: um, mic drop. <laughs> amazing yeah brilliant recommendation i love ella and i'll also link to her um short film octopus in the show notes because i feel like that's an extension you know of her filmmaking ethos um claire thank you so much for sitting down with me today it's been such a pleasure to chat with you and hear more about the work that you're doing at the bfi um i've really enjoyed it yeah
1: thank you so much nicole and have a wonderful day
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard, please do rate, review and subscribe, spread the good word, etc. And if you're interested in other interviews of this ilk, check out my episode with Melanie Hoyes. In the meantime, have a great week and I'll be back next Friday with a brand new episode.